You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. In early 2000, eBay was still a little bit of a novelty. The auction site hadn't even introduced the buy it now feature for items. If you wanted something, you had to wait days until bidding ended and you had to hope you had the highest offer. Sniping, or the act of bidding at the last possible second, could rip some prized would-be possession out of your grasp especially if someone had a broadband connection with blazing fast internet speeds instead of, you know, dial-up. eBay was also becoming a hot market for comic books. Before eBay, if you wanted to buy a rare comic, you'd have to go to an auction in person, or attend a comic convention, or buy a trade publication and scan their list of comics, then mail in an order, with a check. But eBay was changing all that. It was democratizing the buying and selling of collectibles. That's important to know in order to understand what happens next. As you'll recall, comic book dealer Stephen Fischler got a frantic phone call from Nicolas Cage, who explained his three most prized comic books worth hundreds of thousands of dollars had been stolen. Action Comics number one, Detective Comics number 27, and the lesser valued but still important Detective Comics number one, vanished without trace from his house in a gated community in Bel Air. No leads, no suspects, just a despondent cage staring at empty wall frames that had once housed the debuts of Superman and Batman. Stephen, of course, was keeping an eye on the collector's community, looking for any sign of the stolen books coming onto the market. He owned his own place, Metropolis Collectibles, in New York, but the chances of the thief strolling into his business were slim. Still, Stephen kept looking. Hope was the only currency he had at the moment. And look, optimism is a defining Superman trait. 
One day, a collector showed Stephen one of his newer acquisitions. It was a copy of Marvel Mystery Comics number 71, dated April 1946. The original Human Torch is flying through the air. A number of characters from ancient Egypt are shocked by his appearance. His young sidekick, Toro, who is also on fire, is socking someone in the gut. Another man appears to be reviving Cleopatra from her sarcophagus, injecting her with a strange serum. It's your typical Golden Age comic cover. Lots of disparate elements stitched together to compel a kid to spend his one and only dime to see how the hell any of this made sense. These days, it's a desirable comic, though not one of the most sought after. Some people chase it just because the cover is cool, a dynamic composition by Golden Age artist Alex Schomburg. What's with the Egyptians? Well, it was just after World War II and comics needed new villains to employ. But something else about it seemed strange to Stephen. Not just the fact that two self-immolating heroes were punching ancient Egyptians. Besides that, here's Stephen to explain. He showed it to me. He's a well-known collector in New York. And I went, where did you get this book? And he said, I got it from this woman on eBay. And I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it. This is impossible. I sold this book. How could Stephen possibly know that? There were hundreds of copies of Marvel Mysteries number 71 out there that had survived being thrown away by parents. But this one was different. Inside, on the first page, was a handwritten sequence of numbers and letters. 7841-D-320. It's an old comic book. Kids wrote or drew all kinds of things on them before they realized some of them could put their kids through college. But this isn't just a doodle. It's legendary in the comic book collector's community because it means the comic belonged to the D Collection, one of the most comprehensive ever assembled. It's a pedigree like a fingerprint. The person who bought this comic book and thousands of others wrote a code on the first page of every one he bought as a teenager and young adult. There's only one Marvel Mystery Comics number 71 with those numbers inside. And it once belonged to a collector Stephen Fischler knew well. This was exactly a book that I had sold Nick that somehow left his house. Someone hadn't stolen three comics from Nicolas Cage. Someone had stolen four. For iHeartRadio, this is Stealing Superman. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is episode two, Four Empty Frames. As soon as Steven got a look at the Marvel mystery, it was his turn to call Cage in a near panic. It was possible he was somehow mistaken, that he misremembered selling it to him, that maybe it wasn't the D copy Cage had bought. But no, Cage confirmed it. He had had a Marvel mystery, and now it was gone. Somehow, in the chaotic aftermath of the heist, he hadn't noticed it missing, Everyone's attention had been on the big two, 
action number one and detective number 27. No one had noticed the weird Egypt meets Marvel comic had vanished too. Nick had a run of Marvel mystery and the only Marvel mystery missing from the house was Marvel 71. He had one through 92, I believe, but missing the 71. And I said, well, because the 71 was taken out of the house. Where a book, I went, that's, it was a pedigree book with very unique markings. It's the same book. So who was this woman on eBay that had sold the book to his collector friend? eBay seller profiles usually have scant information. People can be as anonymous as they like for the most part. You might buy something, even something worth thousands, and not have any more information about the seller than that their screen name is BicepsDude27. There's just one exception. An eBay profile usually offers up the user's city and state. The seller, the one with Cage's book, was in Connecticut. And obviously I connected it to the theft. There's no way if I sold him this book that a woman in Connecticut would have ended up with it, but that's how it happened. So that was the only lead that I had. Somehow in the span of just a couple of months, this book had been taken from Cage's home and been delivered 2,500 miles away and then wound up on eBay. It's worth a, yeah, a few thousand. It wasn't a monumental book on its own, but it just was a book that I sold then. There was just one thing to do. He asked the buyer for more information about the seller. And so he gave me the person who he got it from, and that's how that lead began. This isn't as strange as it sounds. The rare comics collecting community is small. Plenty of people buy and read comics, sure, but not that many deal in rare, high-priced books from the 1940s. Stephen is among the most well-known dealers of such paper treasures. The collector was from New York, where Stephen lived. They had done business before. So the comic finding its way to Stephen wasn't far-fetched. Most desirable comics made their way to him eventually. And the man, whom Stephen prefers not to name, trusted him. And so he told him that the seller was a she, a woman named Kimberly. He gave Stephen a phone number and an email. So Stephen began dialing, wondering if the person who would pick up the phone knew that the comic she had sold had been taken from the home of Nicholas Cage. I had contacted the woman asking how she got it, and she was very worried and defensive. Kimberly did not wish to discuss where her Marvel mystery number 71 had come from. Stephen kept trying, left her phone messages, but got no response. Maybe she was just unsettled by the question. Maybe she had no idea it was stolen. But then the buyer told Stephen another detail. A detail that didn't do anything to convince him Kimberly was an innocent bystander. He had bought the comic in person. An in-person swap. Money for the Marvel mystery. This is the kind of thing people may do on Craigslist, but on eBay? Even back then, it was unusual. The whole point of eBay was to find items you couldn't find locally. And with relative anonymity, you could purchase them safely, without risk of being lured into someone's basement. But Kimberly preferred a personal meeting. And the collector didn't mind. 
Connecticut was a short drive. He had no idea the comic was, well, questionable, and no idea why Kimberly wanted to keep it offline. A cash transaction didn't leave much of a paper trail. If Kimberly didn't know the comic was hot, why insist on meeting up in person? Why the cloak and dagger stuff? Stephen pondered. Whoever took the Marvel mystery had taken the other books, the very rare, very valuable comics. It stood to reason Kimberly probably knew something about the others. So he sat down and began typing another message. This one was more to the point. I sent a letter quietly to this woman who somehow had one of the other stolen books, the Marvel 71, sent her a letter and I said, you know, you might have gotten books. This was my only lead. I said, you may have been in possession of books that could be stolen, but the owner really just wants to get his book back. So I said, here's a picture of a book that was stolen. If you have this book, I will give you $10,000 as a no questions asked finder's fee, a reward for returning this book. Thinking, you know, she got this cheaper book. Stephen was essentially offering her a finder's fee if she could procure the real treasure, the action number one or the detective number 27 or both. He mailed the letter and waited. And while he waited, he thought about something else. Something else that was strange about seeing this comic on eBay. When it disappeared from Cage's house, it had been raw. That's what collectors called a book that hadn't been graded by a third-party company, hadn't been assessed for its condition, for blemishes, for an objective 10-point rating of how well it aged since it was first on the stands in 1946. The system all changed in 2000 when what's now called the Certified Guarantee Company, or CGC, started looking at comics. For a fee of roughly $20, CGC would take your rare comic, examine it, and put it in a protective plastic case so it would be forever sealed against further wear. It solved the problem of a dealer and buyer having different ideas of what a comic's condition was. It was perfect for eBay, when you had to buy items sight unseen. CGC really took off in the early 2000s, mostly because of eBay. That's Paul Litch, primary grader for CGC. Back then, he was the secondary grader. So what CGC really did, it really gave buyers the level playing field to say, no, CGC, this third-party independent impartial company, gave this book that you're selling me an 8.5, so I'm only going to pay the 8.5 price. CGC could make sure a comic was unrestored, hadn't been messed with, and they graded down to the tenth of a point, from 0.5 to 9.2 to, rarely, a 10.0. This Marvel mystery scored very, very high, a 9.4, close to perfect. Once a book is slabbed, it's protected against a lot of things that age old comics, which were never printed to last. Cheap ink and cheap paper degrade. 
So with the microchamber paper in there, it'll help aging of the book and it'll help it with environmental storage problems that may happen down the road, depending on how you store your comic. So that comic is then placed into an inner well. In the inner well, we have many, many different sizes that are custom made for comics. That inner well is sealed on all the edges and then it is placed in the outer acrylic holder, which is just an acrylic plastic, very sturdy, and that is sonically sealed and welded shut. And so you have a tamper evident, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Safe way to store your comics and archival, a nice archival way to protect your comics and protect them from any kind of other damage that could happen just with life. So someone had thoughtfully taken Cage's stolen comic and decided it deserved archival protection, at which point it was sent to CGC for grading before being auctioned on eBay. Someone wanted to squeeze every last dollar out of its value, which was contrary to most stolen goods, where getting a fraction of an item's worth is usually good enough. This was, well, bold. Imagine swiping a painting from a wall and then going to get it appraised in the hopes word hadn't yet reached the expert about the art going missing. Or going to a framing store with a swiped Van Gogh to pick out the perfect frame for your wall. Kimberly either didn't know it had been stolen or knew, but figured it was one of many Marvel mystery comics. She didn't seem to have any idea it was a D copy, one instantly recognizable. Someone had slipped. It suggested that the thief knew enough about comics to grab the most valuable ones, but wasn't that much of an insider to know about the D collection. It revealed something else, too. The comics were taken from Cage's home just days before CGC officially opened for business. Just days. CGC began accepting submissions from the public on January 1st, 2000. It's possible that whoever took Cage's comics wanted to get ahead of CGC, ahead of Cage possibly submitting his valuable books to be slabbed and therefore making them harder to steal. Each slabbed CGC comic carries a certification number. There would be no way of reselling it in its CGC case without someone realizing it had been stolen. Someone would have to take it out, crack the slab, make it a raw book again. It would be harder. Whoever took the comics may have been knowledgeable enough to know that if they waited any longer, the comics might be off to CGC for submission, then encased and trackable. We have helped our chat boards. Dealers have listed books and the serial numbers and the grades that have been stolen from their shops and our comic book community has helped find them. And it has helped, but unfortunately still some thefts do happen. But it also presented another avenue for Stephen to explore. Anyone submitting to CGC had to provide a name and return address to get their comic book back from their office in New Jersey, unless they submitted it through a participating dealer. So Stephen reached out to a contact at CGC 
to see if he could learn anything else. In fact, Stephen had actually helped get CGC off the ground, helping map out what the 10-point grading system should look like, and he discovered something very interesting about Kimberly. She apparently called CGC and said, does CGC give out personal information about who gets the book graded? So something about that whole situation looked pretty bad. Kimberly, from Connecticut, was definitely getting worried. She didn't know Stephen had already gotten her information from the buyer. CGC, for the record, didn't provide any further details about Kimberly to Stephen. But what they had done was confirm what he already knew to be true that the comic he sold Cage was undoubtedly part of the D collection. If Stephen had any doubt before, CGC provided authentication. They always noted a comic's pedigree on their label. Kimberly had taken steps to guarantee that it was Cage's comic beyond all doubt. So out of those four comics, why had this one, the least valuable, least important, come up first. Why wouldn't the person who grabbed it from Cage's home try to cash in on the action number one for $200,000? Why not encase that one in a CGC slab and shoot for the stars? It's a Marvel mystery mystery. So we asked someone who might know. We asked an art thief. Well, listen, my attitude is I never give anyone the benefit of the doubt and regard everyone as despicable as each other. And if you go into these things with that attitude, you normally can't go far wrong. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Okay, so let's be clear. We asked a reformed art thief. A man named Paul Hendry. Paul is from the UK, and for years he made a dishonest living as a knocker. That's a person who would find reasons to get inside someone's house and assess their belongings for anything worth stealing. If he found something good, he'd rope in some co-conspirators, the people doing the actual liberation of the goods. Well, yes, I was born in Brighton on the south coast of the UK in 1964, and I was adopted. And then when I was 12, I went out on the knocker, which is something where you knock on people's houses, try to buy antiques. I moved swiftly up the food chain and started organising thefts from country houses. And then I became very, very successful in the 1980s. And then I gave up the business early 90s when my son was born. And I went to university and got a BA honours degree in American social studies and a master's degree in contemporary history. And I now commentate on art-related crime because I've seen it from both perspectives. Paul has helped the FBI, foreign law enforcement, and local bureaus find and recover stolen artworks. 
He's well-versed in what happens when someone steals one-of-a-kind pieces and then tries to figure out what to do with them. Well, yes. People call me the art crime ombudsman. So really, when I see wrongdoing, whoever's doing it, whether it's law enforcement, the insurance industry, private art detectives, thieves, handlers, whoever, I call everyone out. So to be honest with you, I upset everyone at some point in time. And the fact that the Marvel mystery, the least valuable comic in the bunch, was the first to surface doesn't surprise him one bit. Right, so obviously the person put it on eBay, testing the water. It's a test balloon to see whether it can slip through the market without coming on top, without being discovered. Remember, two of the four comics were the two rarest. The other two, the Marvel mystery and the detective number one, weren't. The action number one was worth at least $200,000. The Marvel mystery? About $1,000. But to be honest with you, because of the large discrepancies in value, I would be leaning towards they took those to use as test balloons. And the proof of the pudding in that is the first comic that surfaced in Connecticut was the lesser valued one. Right. So I would actually look towards that as, yes, they took one very valuable one and one less valuable one, one very valuable one, one less valuable one, to use as bargaining chips as a test balloon. If the Marvel mystery had gone undetected, it was entirely possible that the more valuable comics would have surfaced soon after, the action number one and detective number 27. Maybe they'd be in shiny new CGC slabs, ready to be framed or displayed. Maybe they already were. CGC, after all, couldn't possibly be suspicious of every comic that was submitted to them, or treat the submitter as though they were a thief. But the Marvel mystery did not go undetected. Steven detected it. This was a real lead. Tangible, verifiable proof that at least one of the comics was out there, and proof that the comics weren't taken as a prank or had somehow been misplaced. Whoever had taken the comics had not done so for their own personal pleasure, to have some kind of illicit comic book collection for their eyes only. The Marvel mystery was put up for sale for money. You have to remember, art, be it a comic, a painting, a sculpture, or anything, is just a commodity, and the thieves steal them because they can, and then they try to monetize them. Now, comics are like, say, musical instruments. They're quite unique, and the market for them, and collector's market, is a very, very small market. The majority of art crime is against personal householders, where they have art and antiques stolen, with values ranging from, say, $1,000 up to $10,000, and maybe $100,000. Now, those things happen every day of the week, all over the world. Every now and again, you get a big heist from a museum where paintings worth millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars are stolen, and then they're either ransomed back to the insurance company or victims, or they're held as collateral and used within the underworld in drug deals because the moving of money around the world is much more difficult because of money laundering laws. 
So these comics, including the Superman ones and all of them, are just a commodity. If you put it in a safety deposit box, you can give the person that you're going to borrow some money off or you're going to get some narcotics off, you give them the key to that box and access to it as collateral. And then when you sell the drugs or pay the money back, you can then get the access back again. When the cage books went missing, when any art goes missing, there's always a question of whether it was an impulsive crime, something done at the spur of the moment, or something premeditated. And if it were premeditated, whether the thief knew exactly where the comics were going to go, whether they had a buyer already lined up. If not, how else could one of them get from Los Angeles to Connecticut so quickly? If this was a carefully planned theft, then the people would have either had someone that they were going to sell them to straight away already sorted out, or they would at least know where they were going to monetize them or what they were going to do with them afterwards. Bob Whitman, ex-FBI art crime team boss, he's got a good saying, you know, art thieves are very good at stealing art, but they're terrible businessmen and terrible at trying to monetize the art once they've stolen it. Were it not for that infernal decollection marking, the Marvel mysteries could have passed unnoticed. Comics have the benefit of being printed in multiples. Most art is one of one, and therefore much harder to return to a legitimate market. Well, a lot of art theft, you see, is opportunist thief, or even those that are planned, right? They put a lot of planning into the actual stealing of the artwork, but not so much planning as what they're going to do with them once they've stolen them. And then they find it's even in the art world, it's a very, very exclusive club. And it's very, very difficult if you don't know the right contacts to know what to do with these things. Unless, of course, it was something like, I mean, there's a gang in the UK and they raid stately homes. Now, they stole a solid gold toilet that was being exhibited at Blenheim Palace. And this solid gold toilet weighed something like 120 kilos. And they ripped it out of where it was being exhibited. They cut it up and they put it in the melting pot for $5 million. And it was insured for $6 million, but it got melted down, you see. So that was a work of art that could just literally be monetized because of the material that it was made by. There was also a place where there was a diamond tiara, a Portland tiara, that was stolen, worth millions of dollars. They just popped all the big diamonds out of it and melted down the frame and sold the stones for a few hundred thousand dollars. So there are different things. I mean, with this comic, you couldn't do anything like that because it's an inanimate object, something that you can't change it into anything. But again, it's something that could be used as collateral by the underworld, but you've got to get it into the underworld. And from what I can see, I don't think they ever really reached the underworld with this. Unfortunately, this was no golden toilet. But it was altered in a way. When it was stolen from Cage's house, it was raw. Now it was slabbed. Kimberly may have wanted to give the comic a fresh start, have it appear to be something other than what had gone missing. Some art is stolen for ransom, kind of a Lindbergh baby situation, a kidnapping. The intent isn't to try to move it on the market, but to tempt the owner with it, if some kind of agreement can be made, to dangle the art in front of the nose of the victim and promise its safe return in exchange for a fee. Stephen Fischler had essentially done that in reverse. He proactively offered a reward to the mysterious Kimberly from Connecticut. The question was, would she bite? 
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Guilty or not, Kimberly was not playing it cool. She had phoned CGC in a panic, hoping they wouldn't give out her personal information. She refused to speak to Stephen. And when Stephen offered her a monetary reward that was virtually 10 times what the Marvel mystery was worth, she never responded. But Stephen wasn't out of options. In addition to offering Kimberly a reward, he reached out to Los Angeles detective Donald Harisik, the man who was leading the investigation into the heist. Stephen expected Harisik to do something. Make a call, contact the Connecticut police, follow the only lead anyone had. Maybe not kick down her door, but something. I got a feeling from what I heard about this woman's reaction, who I contacted asking how she got this Marvel mystery, she got very panicky. So I said to the police, she's acting like she contacted the company who graded the book for her and was worried that they would reveal her information. And went, that's somebody who knew that that book was questionable. According to Stephen, Detective Harisek wasn't as enthusiastic as one might expect. Well, he was annoyed that I contacted the woman directly, and now she won't talk to him. <laughs> I'm going, you're the police. I said, call her up and say who you are. You know, I don't think police work ended with the notion of she won't talk to me. When Kimberly refused to talk to Harisik, it seemed as though he just, well, gave up. Harisik was less than curious. Stephen knew that Cage had his own security personnel working on things, so he reached out to them to let them know that a woman named Kimberly in Connecticut was in possession of one of Cage's comics, without question or doubt, the D copy. Yeah, I had spoken to, uh, oh, absolutely. Just give me an update. I said, I have found a book that left Nick's house and it was transacted off of eBay by a woman in Connecticut. Well, they found it interesting, but I'll be honest, it seemed a bit like they were being annoyed by me. Like, Nick had a security person, I cannot remember his name, in place a little bit after that. And I, all right, we'll have the security person follow up on this. Why am I doing this? And the security person didn't seem to be bothered by trying to track this down. I mean, I found it a little frustrating talking to Nick's people. Going, something's not, something doesn't make sense here. Like, I could have been talking to somebody who stole it. Like, they didn't want to deal with it. And maybe they had, I, I don't know. To be honest, I just don't know. There was some weirdness going on. Instead of, wow, Steve's really trying to find the book, it became, wow, Steve's really annoying us. I said to myself at the time, I said, this is bizarre. It is bizarre. And Paul Hendry has a theory about that too. The police would go to see the person in Connecticut and try to track it back from there. The fact that they didn't do it makes you wonder a lot about this. Like? Well, initially, I think we've got to look at that behavior, and any investigator would look at that behavior 
as perhaps Nicolas Cage has some idea of who stole these things and the reason that they stole them. Because to be honest with you, you know what celebrities are like. If this was just a genuine theft and Nicolas Cage is a victim of this theft, it would have been all over the news and he would have given interviews. Because, you know, in that world, like Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than bad publicity is no publicity. And this would have given a platform for Nicolas Cage to say he's a victim of an art theft. We've seen it before when famous people have been robbed. I mean, they've gone out and they've said, we'd like their things back and they contact the police. But at this point, Cage had still not gone public with the theft. And neither the police nor his security seemed enthusiastic about pursuing the Kimberly situation. Cage's people did send a letter to her. And according to what Stephen was told, Kimberly sent a letter back, insisting they were harassing her. So it's possible Nicholas Cage didn't want to be perceived as someone who was ordering his staff to bother a strange woman who may or may not know anything about his stolen comic books. That's a weird National Enquirer-worthy headline. But she was the only link to the heist. So why didn't anyone make more of an effort to question her? I think as we've gone through the whole story, it really is a Russian doll. You're opening more and more layers, you're peeling back the onion, and at every kind of stop, there is something there that doesn't smell right, that doesn't taste right, and doesn't look right. And in the normal world of things, this is not normally what would happen from the theft of it, to the handling of it, to the surfacing. Stephen Fischler agrees. And I gave the police this lead, and they were really just not doing much with it. And I said, all right, well, here's a book that came from Nick's house. This is my only lead. The police don't seem to have the wherewithal to really follow it up, or the motivation. And I just became like the crazy uncle who is still trying to find these books. And the detective saw me as a, sort of a nuisance. But that was then, and this is now. Time has passed. And you're probably thinking, well, why not try to find Kimberly today? There's one hurdle to overcome. Kimberly's full name is not uncommon. In other words, a lot of people named Kimberly live in Connecticut. So we needed more to go on. A town, a phone number, information that has, in the intervening years, slipped through Stephen Fischler's memory. But it is the kind of information CGC would have recorded back in 2000 when they accepted the Marvel Mystery number 71. A scan of the comic still exists. So we typed in the certification number into the CGC's database, the registry Paul Litch was talking about, the one given to the comic back when it was graded, it's a 10-digit number that gives a person general information about the comic, like the date it was examined, and any grader's notes, like ketchup stain on third page. But the CGC's database couldn't find the certification number. It seemed to have disappeared from their system entirely. That was unusual. Had CGC scrubbed the number after Kimberly called to complain? Or was it just a glitch? So we asked Paul Litch. According to Paul, the number not coming up means the comic may have been resubmitted at some point. Some collectors do this in the hopes CGC might wind up giving their comic a more favorable grade. If that happened, 
then the old label and number would have been destroyed. I don't see why we wouldn't. It's got to be here somewhere, but as far as who submitted it, that's above my pay grade. You'd have to, I don't know, <laughs> ask one of the head honchos. Paul told us to talk to someone higher up in the CGC hierarchy to see what we could find out. We had a full name and a state, a non-working certification number, and a question about a comic submitted that had been stolen. Could they help us find Kimberly from Connecticut? We went to the head honcho to find out. Harshan Patel, vice president of the CGC. We explained the situation and Harshan understood. But however noble our intentions, the CGC has a commitment to protecting the privacy of their customers. Harshan told us that the only way he could hand over that kind of information would be with a subpoena. That was dead end number two. So we tried something else. In 2002, that same copy of Marvel Mystery number 71 went up for sale via Heritage Auctions, one of the largest auctioneers in the industry. Auctions like these are always private. No one but the auction house knows who the buyers or sellers are. It's possible the seller was the same person who bought it from Kimberly. But again, Heritage couldn't reveal their identity. Strike three. For now, the location of the elusive Kimberly remains a mystery. But maybe not for much longer. There's one more thing to try. Stay tuned. But what about that Marvel mystery number 71? Shouldn't it have been returned to Nicolas Cage? Shouldn't the New York buyer have forfeited what he knew to be stolen property? Well, he would have, except Cage wasn't asking for it back. Because the main thing was trying to figure out the action one, trying to undertake him. I had mentioned to Nick about this lead, and if Nick said to me, that's my book, I want it back, it was more about the lead versus getting it back. By this point, Cage's insurance company had paid out on all four books. He had been financially, if not emotionally, compensated for their loss. The Marvel mystery was, in some ways, small potatoes, even though the fact that it had materialized in Connecticut means someone had crossed state lines and technically made a Los Angeles robbery a federal crime. And maybe, it was someone Cage knew well. Maybe someone Cage already considered a suspect, which made looking into Kimberly less of a priority. To find these comics, someone was going to have to take the initiative. The problem was there was no analog for this heist. There were plenty of art thefts, but not many comic book thefts. It makes you wonder if anyone had ever been bold enough to steal an action number one before Cage's copy went missing. If any crime had been an inspiration for this one. If it had been a kind of copycat comic heist. It turns out the answer is yes. And it happened in, of all places, Connecticut.
Stealing Superman is written by Jake Rawson. Sound design scoring by Josh Fisher. Additional editing by Jonathan Washington. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson and Austin Thompson, with production support from Lulu Phillip. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is Jason English. And I'm your host, Dana Schwartz. If you're enjoying this show, check out Haleywood and Noble Blood, and give us a nice review. We'll see you next week. Stealing Superman is a production of iHeartRadio. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.